0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickle's and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Hi Greeva Huggy Rao. Professor at Stanford University is the author of several best-selling books, including his most recent with co-author Bob Sutton, The Friction Project. His books have been covered in The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Inc. Magazine, Amazon, Forbes, and Washington Post, among others. Huggy has also consulted with organizations such as BP, Semex, General Electric, IBM, Mass Mutual, the American Cancer Society, the FBI, and the CIA. I hope you enjoyed learning from Huggy Rao today, because I certainly did. Well, Huggy, it's so great to chat today. We have a mutual connection in Bob Sutton, and I'm so grateful for the chance that we have to speak today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here with you this uh, afternoon, Nate, and a delight to be connected with you and to have this conversation with you.
0: Well, Huggy, you and Bob recently wrote the book, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. Why did you write the book?
1: That is a great question. I can... Most certainly say neither of us had the plan of writing a book like this. We wrote a book called Scaling Up Excellence, uh, you know, which did well. And we were, you know, in a sense, propagating the material for scaling up excellence need. We found that C-suite and senior executives immediately leapt at the ideas. But the farther down we went through the organization. You know, what we heard from people was how hard it was to get anything done, particularly in large companies. Let me give you like two extreme bookends. I was teaching a class of executives at Stanford and I asked one of the executives, hey, where do you work? Expect him to say NVIDIA, Google, you know, the usual cast of character. And the guy looks at me, smiles, Nate, and says, Professor, I work in a frustration factory. Hmm. And that kind of hits you in the gut. It certainly hit us in the gut. And, you know, just to think of somebody who's got to go to work every day, to work in a frustration factory, it just chilled the bejesus out of me. Then there was another young lady. I remember her very vividly because she said this with, really a quiver in her voice that kind of pierced my heart, you know? And I said, what do you do at work? She said, I pour myself into a lot of inconsequential work. Mm. And she said, I'm exhausted. And I said, and then what? And she looks at me and says, professor, I spend my life pouring myself into doing BS work And when I go home, I only have the scraps of myself for my family. Hmm. I don't know about you, Nate, but that really got our attention. And you kind of realize and say, why are people feeling this way? And the answer very quickly had to do with uh, an excess of bad friction because The real problem is nobody cares about time in the organization. That is the time of other people. It's a tragedy of the commons. And so you have a surfeit of bad friction. And what we kind of discovered was really that this bad friction, it impeded initiative and generosity. Because in the end, what we want employees to do or what leaders can do is they've got to create the conditions so that employees can choose a more curious and generous version of themselves. And that's why we need to take bad friction. We started there, we very quickly realized, wait a minute, all friction isn't bad. Sometimes you're gonna introduce good friction in order to slow things down so that people choose don't choose an overconfident myopic or biased version of themselves. So we had these two twin ideas and the more we thought about it, the more we felt that leadership really had to do with starting with the understanding that every leader, it doesn't matter whether you're a team leader, department, division, business unit, corporate leader, you really are a trustee of other people's time. Mm. And other people's time isn't something that ought to be wasted away, that ought to be frittered away. Because when you fritter away other people's time, you're actually destroying their sense of self. So, but by the same token, you have to really think of putting in good friction and put simply, friction for us means obstacle. Some obstacles get in the way of curiosity and generosity, take them out. Some obstacles actually educate people in certain. And we have a set of friction forensics and the like to help people figure out when should you do one as opposed to the other.
0: You know, I can relate to that woman. And it's so sad to hear when you know she says she does inconsequential work and is exhausted and only has for herself or her family. I had a job once, and after doing it for several months, I told my wife, I feel like it's sucking the soul out of me. Beautiful, see? Tragic. And I had to get out. <laughs> and not Tell everybody can. Not everybody can get out,
1: but I had to get out. Exactly. So, and you were fortunate to have a very wise partner who helped you presumably get out too. Yes, Because yes. as you know, we need escape velocity. It's not merely the decision to leave that's the important thing. There's escape velocity involved, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. The ability to leave. So, Huggy, great setup for why you wrote the book. Uh, I, I'm curious if, if you had to you know, do the impossible task of saying what are you know, the one or two lessons that you would most like for people to take away from your work? How would you respond to that?
1: That is a, a tough and demanding question, but a good one. So I'll try and be sort of precise. The, simply, what we'd like people to kind of walk away with is a twofold message. If you're a leader, your job or your challenge is to design the jobs of your subordinates. And when you think of designing the jobs of your subordinates with them, think carefully about the role of obstacles. Remove obstacles that infuriate, insert obstacles that educate. Put another way, the job of a leader is twofold, One is mowing the lawn. Most people think taking away bad friction is a project. It's not a project. It's like mowing the lawn. How often do we all mow the lawn? Pretty regularly, I imagine. Hmm. And that's the challenge. So we got to mow the lawn at a high level. And the other thing we sort of want to do is, as a leader, you really need to slow down people Otherwise, the effects of time poverty will lead to good people doing bad things. Hmm. So that's really the core of the book. And so what leaders ought to do is, as you think of the design of these obstacles, all the time you're saying, my employees have many selves and they have a choice of which self to recruit. I want them to recruit a curious and generous version of themselves. I want them not to recruit an overconfident and myopic version of themselves. And that's really the job of the leader. I mean, that's, in a sense, the summary of.
0: So such a great approach, because it can be so easy for a leader to think transactionally. You know, I pay you a salary to come do whatever I ask you to do. Uh, but we can have such a greater impact in people's lives, and ultimately have a more successful company, greater impact, greater products by taking this approach that you were talking about: removing obstacles that infuriate, add obstacles that educate.
1: That's uh, that you you know this better than me need. If you really look at the lit- literature on job design, starting from the pioneering work of Eric Trist, people who studied alienation from work. They said, hey, we need to deal with the problem of repetitive work by creating variety. It was an extremely specific kind of response to a very specific sort of set of challenges as you recall in the open cast mining industry. Now, subsequently, of course, we had ideas of job enlargement and job enrichment and how they lead to satisfaction and so on. All of this represents, if you will, Love of employee. What do we do to help the employee do more? Unfortunately, there's logistics too. And the logistics are, the more you add to people, the more you overwhelm them with cognitive load. And in the end, you can't have employees spread thinly like peanut butter on a slice of toast. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the literature on job crafting, it's also testament to the addition, Because what do individuals do? They add more relationships, more tasks, and you get the idea. So what we are sort of suggesting is love ought to meet logistics. So if you really love employees, pay attention to the logistics of the job, in particular the obstacles that occupy their time and energy.
0: So what are some of the most damaging causes of friction in organizations?
1: And there are a number of things that we talk about in the book, um, Need uh, We call them ramps to the highway of friction. <clears throat> One is uh, really myopia on the part of senior leaders. Because the fact of the matter is, as we know from the work of my colleague, Deb Grunfeld and Dr. Keltner, people in power have tunnel vision because they don't search much. You don't need to. And then there are other studies by Rob Cross and the others who actually suggest that people working in senior echelons of the enterprise systematically underestimate coordination difficulty. So they think things are easy to be done. So that's like one ramp, if you will. The second reason is, as I've discussed earlier, the human tendency to add, and add. add. There was a lovely article in Nature recently and what did it show? Every time given a choice, what people like to do is to add then to subtract. And here, I wanna be careful when I say the word subtract. I don't want people to think that subtraction is some kind of efficiency exercise only. For us, subtraction means you take BS out of work You take infuriating obstacles out of people's work, but equally importantly, you're focused on subtracting the feelings that accompany them. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do. It's not wiping off a set of tasks off the board. You know, it's a lot more than that. So those are two quick ramps. The third ramp that we talk about in the book is a ramp called jargon monoxide. And, you know, what we do is we use complicated language and the like, and there's a lot of mishmash and there's a lot of confusion. So people don't even have common knowledge because you don't exactly know what the semantic coverage of these ideas is. And you can imagine the kinds of decisions kind of people make. So those are some quick examples of the ramps to the road of uh, friction. There's five, six of them, but these are the ones we actually kind of focus on. And so a lot of our remedies are very practical.
0: What are the remedies?
1: So I'll give you two simple examples for taking out bad friction and give you an example or two about inserting good friction um, need. So, <clears throat> let's take a you know, quick uh, example of uh, uh, removing bad friction. Our wonderful comrade in this m- movement to make work less of a grind, Lydie Claudez. Lydie actually proposes a wonderful idea and that idea is the rule of halves. Imagine you have half the people to do this. Imagine you have half the resources to do this. What would you do when you're putting constraint and subtracting and flushing out things you don't need? When I teach executives, one of the simple things I tell them is, hey, imagine you're going going back to work on Monday and you're going to announce an initiative called get rid of stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. Plenty of stupid stuff in companies, you want to get rid of it. Come Come up with a message that can immediately be understood by a 10 year old, and by the way, I'm going to allow you to have only one rule to guide this initiative called get rid of stupid stuff. And that word should be simple, those rules should be simple enough, of course, to be understood by a 10 year old and they ought not to contain more than four words. It is very hard for executives to do this. We often think of this as a failure of Implementation, it actually is a failure of imagination. I would submit to you. So, two examples on the bad frictions. Inserting good friction, well, you need to insert good friction when you're making difficult to reverse decisions, when you're doing creative work, when you're doing complex work. We have a number of criteria. So, let me give you an example or two. Well, sometimes all that you need is friction. You can add constructive friction in the form of a question. My wonderful colleague, Jennifer Eberhardt did a project with the Oakland Police Department. And in 2018 or 19, the Oakland cops stopped 31,000 vehicles approximately. Many of them were stops of African-Americans and Latinos that didn't need to be done. How do you get cops to stop cars on the basis of bias and profiling and all of that, and Jennifer's suggestion was a very simple one of adding friction. It turns out that cops at uh, in Oakland, when they stop a vehicle, they got to fill a form, and most people's cops simulate how they're going to fill the form. So they're all yes no questions. She added a fourth question, and the fourth question was, "Do you have intelligence that connects this vehicle to a prior crime?" Yes. Adding that question led to a 31% drop wow. in the number of traffic stops. Predictably, African Americans got stopped fewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though they were f- and as did as were Latinos, but even though there were fewer stops, people, are, you know, ironically felt much safer. So that's like an example of adding good friction let me kind of take you to my classroom where I add good friction and take out bad friction. You and I as professors know that one of the things we have to do is we have to assess our students and have an exam or some equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I suspect your students react the same way. My students, if I give them a 25-page case study with like a bunch of exhibits where they have to do some optimization or whatever, they find it really boring. Mm-hmm. They say, why should I do this so that you've got to give me a grade? They think of this as bad friction. Instead, what have I been doing for the last 18, 19 years at Stanford? Every class I teach, I get an alum from the previous class who is actually scaling his or company, her company, and I ask them, share three challenges you face on scaling your firm. Share them with the students. And I tell the students, your exam is to help these people. Use everything that you've learned in the course elsewhere. Question 1, 200 words. Question 3, 2, 300 words. Question 3, 500 words. I got to tell you, Nate, they work the entire weekend. <laughs>
0: Why?
1: I've evoked felt accountability. Yeah. They're not accountable to me, they, it's an alum and they want to help the alum and they want to be like the alum. You obviously can easily kind of list all of the psychological mechanisms that are being activated by a simple arrangement like that. They're real curious, they're very generous.
0: Well, Huggy, this has just been such an interesting interview. You've given me and the listeners so much to think about in terms of uh, removing bad friction, increasing good friction, and then just making the workplace uh, a place where people can thrive. Uh, so I just want to thank you so much for spending your time. And uh, I look forward to sharing these lessons with my students and listeners and and even my children uh, to prepare them for their career. So thank you so much, Huggy.
1: Beautiful. Uh, Thank you so very much, Nate. One other thing, by the way, to all of your listeners, please remember that curiosity and generosity aren't muscles you use only at work. It's not like at the end of work, you park them there. Make sure you take those two muscles to your home. What would life be if you weren't curious at home? What would life be if you weren't generous at home? Even a simple thing like cooking, Nate, You mentioned you had four kids. Mm. We do this in our home. Our decision-making model to make a meal is randomization. Mm -hmm. Let's get an atlas, close our eyes, take the index finger, stick it on some part of the world, and then we'll cook a dish from there. Like none of us know what the hell that is about. Mm -hmm. And you learn about it. And, you know, you suddenly realize all of the things that we think are ours, they really aren't ours. They've traveled. From one place to another, one culture to another, and I don't know about you, it makes me feel so much more kind of connected. Uh, so, and that's a message I want your listeners to think about because in the end, if we live in a society where all that we have are scraps of ourselves from home, that would be a tragic outcome. Excellent,
0: couldn't agree more. Thank you, Huggy. We we'll leave it at that. Appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickels and Dimes. I love Huggy's approach of trying to create conditions where employees can choose a more curious and generous version of themselves. Whether leaders are wasting others' time or underestimating coordination problems, they are creating bad friction that leads people to say things like, after pouring myself into my BS work each day, I only have scraps of myself for my family. But not all friction is bad. Creating friction for the Oakland Police Department led to less African Americans and Latinos being unjustly stopped. As Huggy's work shows, a leader has two primary jobs, remove obstacles that infuriate and insert obstacles that educate. It's a simple idea, please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with a couple requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review on your podcast player. Lastly, if you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.